Thank you, Paula. Thanks to John. Thanks to Carlos and to Eddie and to those who have testified tonight. I always think mission trips are uh, not so much about counting uh, the, the seeds in an apple. Anybody can do that. But counting the apples in a seed and each of those missionaries a seed. And who knows what fruit they will bear as their lives are planted by God for His purposes in our world. I was pondering this afternoon, and it occurred to me that there are many things in this world that we will never know. Now think about that. We live in this information age. We've got more access to information, perhaps, than we've ever had. And yet there are some things in this world that we will never, ever know. Why, for instance, glue doesn't stick to the inside of the bottle? I mean, that's something we will never know. Why there isn't mouse-flavored cat food? Who knows why? Why they lock the gas station bathrooms? Are they afraid somebody's going to go in there and clean them up? (laughs) Think about why there are five syllables in the word monosyllabic. It's just hard to understand. When two airplanes almost collide, why do they call it a near miss? It sounds more like a near hit, doesn't it? Why do banks charge you non-sufficient funds on money they know you don't have? You drive on a parkway, you park in a driveway. Why do they call them apartments when they're stuck together? It seemed like uh, they wouldn't be called that. Why do they call buildings when they're already finished? Shouldn't they be called built? And if the black box flight recorder is never damaged during a plane crash, why don't they make the whole plane out of that stuff? It just it makes you wonder. And we can ask why and never know. But I wonder, what would it take for us to get to know God deeply, the ineffable God Here we are with our finite minds, and we have this infinite God, and we want to know Him and understand Him, and we want to comprehend the incomprehensible. Annie Dillard captures just something of our quandary in her little book, Teaching Stones to Talk. She asked this question, why do people in churches seem like cheerful tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? On the whole, she said, I don't find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Do we have any idea, the foggiest notion, what sort of power we so blithely invoke when we pray? Or as I suspect, she says, do we really believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats in church. We should all be wearing crash helmets, she said. Ushers should uh, issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the God we invoke might wake up and take offense, or the waking God might draw us out to where we can never return. I was hoping that might happen tonight that God might draw you and me out in our study of the book of Job to a place where we could never return, never return to our former lack of understanding about God and His ways. The book of Job shows us a number of things, but one thing is clear. God knows more about us than we know about Him. But the good news is He wants us to know Him better. So would you contemplate with me tonight the story of Job? And I think you know the first part of the book, so I'd like to read just the last part of the book with you tonight. And 
then we will consider the often forgotten benefits of our suffering. Let's stand together as we read God's Word tonight. You know the first two chapters of the book of Job are prologue. These uh, chapters tell us something about how Job got into the mess that we find him in. Then there is a, a lengthy passage of dialogue between him and three, I hesitate to use the word friends, but that's what the Bible calls them, so we'll call them that. They weren't very friendly. With friends like them, I'm not sure Job needed enemies. Then there is a moment where Job answers them, and then Elihu, a a fourth friend, comes on the scene, and he seems to have a clearer perspective than the others. And finally, at long last, God speaks. And when God speaks, everybody listens, especially Job. And Job, finally, after asking for an interview with God and getting, be careful what you ask for, getting the interview that he sought, In chapter 42, verse 1, it says, Then Job replied to the Lord. Job 42, verse 1, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I didn't understand, things... Too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh, Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Help us to know you until we know that our Redeemer lives and on the earth again shall stand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I suppose Job never saw it coming. He was uh, doing all the right things. Remember Father's Day? I preached the first uh, five or six verses of the book of Job, chapter 1, and it just tells us about him, how he's, he's right with God in every way you can be right with God. He's doing all the right things. It's as if the writer of Job wants us to know Job did not bring this on himself. He was doing the right things, and you remember there's a dialogue between the angels who come in the presence of God, and if you remember, you may have forgotten this. I, I had somehow forgotten this for a moment, but when I read it again, I was reminded that it wasn't Satan who brought Job to God's attention. But it was God who brought Job to Satan's attention and said, have you considered my servant Job? There's really nobody like him, God says. He's doing all the right things. And and Satan, in his own way, says, yeah, yeah, well, look at all the good things you're doing for him. You, You let me get his undivided attention and he'll curse you to your face and God says, okay, go ahead, but you can't touch his body. And, and Job, who has everything that a person could want in this world materially, Job, 
who has 10 kids for whom he prays, kids whom he reaches out to, kids who know that their dad cares about their spiritual condition, Job who has all these things in a a series of events, uh, an attack by raiders, a natural disaster, another attack by another group of raiders, and another natural disaster, he loses everything he owns. And he loses his kids in one fell swoop. But all he does is bless God. The Lord gives. Remember? The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And a period of time passes. Had you forgotten that? There's a period of time that passes and then the angels present themselves before God and and God, can you believe it, calls Job to Satan's attention again and says, have you considered my servant Job? You, you wanted to wreck his life and ruin it, but I, but I want you to see how he has not cursed my name. And Satan says those fateful words, skin for skin. Let me touch his skin. Let me afflict him with boils. Let me take away his health. He's lost everything else except his wife and his health. But if I took away his health, oh, he would curse your name. And in the story, God allows Satan to take away Job's health, and Job still doesn't curse God. And then Job's friends come, three friends, um, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, they They come and they sit silently for a season. It's probably the best thing they do in the story. They sit silently for a season. And then Job begins to speak. And he says what he feels. Whatever you fault Job for, don't fault him for his honesty. He says, I wish I was never born. I wish I was never born. And Job doesn't know everything he needs to know about God. And in the process of the dialogue, the the friends talk, and Job talks, and the friends talk again, and Job talks again, and the friends talk a third time, at least two of them. Zophar would have been too much, perhaps, but Eliphaz and Bildad one more time, and Job speaks again, and then Elihu. And it's Elihu who sort of prepares the hearts of these to hear the truth. He talks about God's sovereignty and about God's forgiveness and about God's genuine concern for people. And it's in that context, after a long apology about being too young to talk at all, finally, Elihu sheds some light on the subject, and it's almost as if it primes the pump for God to speak. And God reveals the magnificence of his power, and he, he says, Job, you want, you want to go three rounds with the Almighty? You, you want to talk to me? Well, let me interview you for a while. And he does. And and Job is left, how shall we say it, spiritually speechless. He doesn't have anything else to say. And then God does some remarkable things. And here's what I want you to see. These remarkable words that Job speaks in the fifth verse of the 42nd chapter when he says, I had heard about you. But now I've seen you, and I have nothing further to say. No further questions, Your Honor. And God says, now, let's set all these things 
aright and systematically God restores, really, it seems to us, all that Job has lost and more. I love this story because it reminds me that even after all these years of studying God's Word, all the sermons that I've heard and all the sermons that I've preached, after years of sitting in great Bible studies as I was growing up, after all these years, it's true, I've, I've heard about God. You've heard about God. You, I, I've seen the list of, of your preachers through the years. I know from whom you have heard about God. But I was wondering, what would it be worth for us tonight to see God? What would it take for people like you and I to go beyond hearsay and to come to the place that we've actually seen God? The God who knows so much about us, so much more than we know about Him. And what if God used the suffering of this life to reveal Himself to us in ways that we never could have imagined. I don't mean to explain suffering. I don't mean to trivialize it. I certainly don't mean. But it seems to me that you and I, in this suffering world, spend an undue amount of time trying somehow to prevent suffering, which on the surface sounds like exactly the right thing to do. Suffering hurts. And I have become, uh, I have become as best I can, a uh, uh, great at the aversion of pain in my life. I mean, any way I can avoid pain, I avoid it as often as I can. It would seem like preventing suffering would be the, the great answer to the pain in our world. But would you agree with me tonight that try as we may, in this suffering world, we will not succeed ultimately in averting all pain for all people all the time. So I'd like to suggest from the book of Job a different approach What if instead of trying to avoid suffering and prevent suffering, what if you and I entered into suffering? What if we entered into the suffering of others and uh, wept with those who wept? It seems to me like this is God's approach, that, that God who is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent, God who is sovereign, if he wanted to, could stop all suffering for all time right now if he wanted to. But what we learn from the book of Job, what we learn from the New Testament as well, is that we serve the suffering God who enters into our suffering in real ways so that when God saw His only Son die on Calvary for us, He understood something of the pain that so many in our congregation have endured in the loss of a child and the reality of the pain in our world. And, and didn't, didn't God, when He stepped down the staircase of heavens with a baby in His arm, when He uh, sent Jesus into the world, when Jesus, the, the, the theological term is kenosis, when He emptied Himself, Philippians chapter 2, of all the glory, He left, remember, remember a, a singer named Oldham years ago, was it Doug Oldham who used to sing, He left the splendor of heaven knowing His destiny was the lonely hill of Golgotha there to lay down His life for me. If that isn't love, then the ocean is dry. There are no stars in the sky and the sparrow can't fly. And it was God's love that caused him to enter into our suffering, to empty himself. So if Job lost everything, think about Jesus dying nearly naked on a cross, 
He who had enjoyed the splendor of heaven for all of eternity in that moment had given up every, as though he ever had many. He never had a place to lay his head, but he gave it all up. And I wonder if Jesus, even in the issue of suffering, is not our great mentor. Doesn't he show us the way? Doesn't he teach us something? So I want to show you tonight something about our knowledge of God and The first thing that occurs to me as we study the book of Job together is that in the aftermath of suffering, God reveals himself personally and powerfully. The truth is God knew Job better than Job knew God. He asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And he describes Job's life. And uh, and I was just reading that today and I thought, does anybody else here, would anybody else here be okay if God never mentioned your name to Satan? Would that be good with you? As I was thinking, I would be fine if he never, ever called attention of my name to Satan. But, but every time, I want you to notice that when Satan unleashed this full-out assault on Job's life, every time he had to ask God's permission. I think it was in our study of Esther, the last time we gathered in one of these chapel series sermons, that I said to you, nothing ever happens to us unless it crosses God's threshold and Jesus' threshold as well. And we live in this suffering world and And we endure suffering. It is a real part of our world. And the truth is, um, I I love what um, Mark Deaver says. He says, we often suffer. We sometimes understand. But we can always trust. We often suffer. It is our story. It's the reality of our world. And uh, I love about Job that uh, for the longest time he doesn't say a thing. Somebody has said nothing is often a good thing to do and almost always a good thing to say. Would that his friends had heard that. The thing about sufferers is that we attract fixers, don't we? And here are these three friends and they're going to to help him. I just want you, just a a few reference points, just to show you the the flavor of what they have to say. Eliphaz in chapter 4 verses 7 and 8 says, people suffer because of their sin. That's his answer. Bildad in chapter 8 verse 4 says, when your children sinned against God, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Thank you very much. Zophar in chapter 11 verses 2 through 6, especially verse 6 says, you think God has been too hard on you, Job? He's even forgotten some of your sin. Again, I say with friends like these, who needs enemies? But you know, they're not alone. It's not unlike Jesus' disciples in John chapter 9, verse 2, when they encounter this man who's been born blind. And Jesus' disciples have been with him for some period of time now. And the only thing they can say about a man who's been born blind is, whose fault is this? To him? Was it some prenatal sin? Or was it his parents? What did they do to deserve this to happen? I love Jesus' answer. I wrote a dissertation on this. Neither, Jesus said. But we got a lot of work to do. As long as it's day, we need to be light because the world is a really, really dark place. And Jesus really never answers their question. He doesn't really dignify their question with the idea that it's a good question to ask. He's so wrapped up in entering into the suffering world that he doesn't have time to explain to them the origin of of suffering. There's no long treatise there from Jesus, but it's a very similar kind of question. You, you would think, you know, 2,000 years ago, that's a primitive mindset. I mean, you know, what do you expect from some fishermen and a former tax collector? I mean, they don't understand the world, but you and I, we've been in discipleship a long time. Remember years ago, I was in the little town of West Texas. Anybody ever been there? Right there on I-35? 
best kolaches in the world. I went there to a hospital. I was called there, a young couple in our church, was having a baby, their first baby. And that baby uh, lived just minutes, just minutes. I was with Casey and Melanie this week. I ate lunch with a friend, and he had written a beautiful epitaph on his wife's uh, grave. And, and I took them, and I read it out loud to them. It's a beautiful. I mean, it's, it's just eloquent, beyond words. Uh, you, you all remember Ann Murphy. And uh, John wrote a beautiful epitaph, and I just went to read it. And right beside Ann's grave, and right beside where John will someday lie, there was, I remembered when I saw it, the tiny tombstone of a, a son, John M. Murphy, their son, who had lived uh, for a couple of days. And Casey was probably not totally aware of all that was going on, but she noticed that, and she said, what, what, t- what? Tell me about that. And we talked about that. And I, I went, as I have done, and I tell you, it may be, it may be the hardest thing um, other pastors in this room might testify, but I think it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do to bury children. I, I remember one time, four children in about a period of nine months, not long before we left Austin, and I remember saying to Melanie and my prayer partners, if, if one more baby dies, it will be the death of me. And I went this day to West Texas, and I, I wept with this young couple. I, I, I cried. And I remember I got in the car, and I was driving away after I prayed with them, and we were making plans for the funeral service, and and I drove by the house of a friend. Um, he was out in his yard, mowing the yard, as I recall. Tell you the truth, you know, he was kind of crazy. And I stopped by and I rolled down my window and he could see the tears just flowing. He said, what's going on? And I said, this baby has died. And I'll never forget, he looked at me. His theology was, um, was still in process, like a lot of us, I suppose. But he looked at me and he said, well, you know, we bring a lot of these things on ourselves, Pastor. I just rolled up my window and drove away. I, there was nothing I could say. You know that whole thing my mom told me the whole time growing up, if you can't think of anything good to say, don't say nothing. This was one of those times. I just had to drive away. There would be a time later when I could talk with him about how crass, how unkind, how thoughtless that comment was. I could only give thanks that the couple wasn't standing there. And I would just say this to you, that we live in a world where there's suffering, and the, and the, the one thing we can be sure of is that the people who are suffering don't need us to help them by telling them that they're the reason for their suffering. In fact, have you lived long enough in your relationship with Christ to know that there's not really an exact correlation between the mistakes we make and the amount of suffering we endure? That, that a lot of, that there is some suffering that is the result of mistakes that we make and we, we acknowledge that and then there's suffering that's the result of the mistakes that other people make and then there's just a lot of suffering that you just cannot explain in this world and you do well not to say, well, this is why that happened as though that were helpful to somebody. Now, these are Job's friends. Look, God knows Job better than Job knows God. And Job doesn't understand his suffering. We often suffer. We sometimes understand. But Job's friends, frankly, they don't have a clue. In the end, uh, all God can say is um, to them, 
go ask Job to pray for you because I'm really, really angry at you. And Job does pray for them, and he is kind even to those who have been unkind to him, which is in itself, I think, a picture of the love of Christ for our world. Look, in the aftermath of suffering, we want to know God better. And so there comes this moment in chapter 31 when Job says, look, I'd like an interview. I'd like to talk with God. In fact, I not only want to talk to God, but for, for just once, I'd like for him to answer me. I, just, I, want, I want to know why. I, I want to know why. And there's no danger in talking to God. And there's no, there, there is some danger, I think, in talking about God negatively, impugning his power and his compassion. But there is no danger in talking to God. R.B. Baker, the longtime minister to Melanie's family, performed our wedding ceremony, prayed for four minutes. I'll never forget that in our, in our wedding ceremony. That's a long time when you're waiting to get married. <laughs> he confessed at a funeral when that bus crashed for a husband and wife, Melvin and Speedy Akers, dear friends of our family, who died in that bus crash with Melanie's mom. This is what he said. He said, when I heard about the bus crash, I was angry. He's honest. Sometimes I think older preachers are more honest than younger preachers. He said, I shook my fist at God. I said, God, I don't like the thought of my friends wallowing in the mud and the glass of a bus crash. Where were you? And as he poured out his heart to God, he said he felt like God answered him and said, I was in the same place. When that bus crashed, I was in the same place I was when those planes crashed into those towers on 9-11. I was the same place I was when my son was being nailed on a cruel cross to die. And one more thing, R.B., get your fist out of my face and take that fist and open the fingers and lift your hands in praise to me. And R.B. said he did. And I believe him. Job wants an interview with God, and God says, "Uh, request granted. You want an interview? Great. Here's an interview, chapter 38 all the way through chapter 41. Here's the thing you need to know about it. When you want an interview with God, it's kind of like Eddie. He's going to hold the mic. (laughs) You you think you're going to hold the mic and interview God? No. In the great interview of the ages, he always holds on to the mic. And he says, Job, I understand you've got some things you want to talk to me about. Let's just talk. You want to talk, Job? Yeah, let's talk. Who is he that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge. The problem is, Job, I know you, but you don't know me, but you think you know me, and so you want to you go 15 rounds with the Almighty. And maybe this is our primary problem with questioning God, is we just don't know what he knows. There's a pastor who was killed in a car crash up in Colorado. Tremendous church planter. Really Rick Ferguson, I think, was as much an influence on me and my idea that Tyler Wood ought to be about church planning as anybody. He used to say, if we knew what God knows, we would always want what God wants. If we knew what God knows, the problem for Job, the problem for us is we're finite, he's infinite, so God interviews Job and, and, and God asks all the questions and he demonstrates his concern in the greatness of creation. And he begins with the earth and he describes the creation of the stars Did you catch any of that uh, meteor shower a few weeks ago? Melanie and I waited up late. Oh, we waited up late. We took the beagle out on the bayou. We didn't see a thing. It was a cloudy night. That's kind of the way our understanding of God is. We we think, oh, we've got this figured out. It's scientific, but it, 
It really isn't. Joshua Harris, whom a lot of our young people are reading these days, he wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and he's written another book, just a simple theology, really. And he says, I knew a girl who used to think the stars were tiny specks of light just over her head. I'm not kidding. She wasn't a junior high kid. She was a college student. She nearly spoke Spanish fluently. She was intelligent in many ways. But one day in a conversation, she said she had just learned that stars in the night sky were actually really far away. She said, you know, they're not just right up there. They're just tiny dots. They're really far away. And Joshua said he was incredulous. He couldn't believe that she believed it. He said, what did you think they were before? She said, I thought they were, you know, just right above us. And then Joshua Harris says, if you were to ask me why it matters that we study the doctrine of God, I'd say for the same reason that it's worth knowing that stars are not tiny pinpricks of light just above our heads. Because when we know the truth about God, it fills us with wonder. So this is what happens to Job. When we know the truth about God, it fills us with wonder. If we fail to understand His true character, we'll never be amazed by Him. We'll never feel small as we stare up at Him. We'll never worship Him as we ought. We'll never run to Him for refuge or realize the great love He's shown in the measureless distance He bridged to rescue us. The infinite God cares infinitely about the infinite details in our finite lives. And God invites Job to correct him, but Job wisely declines in chapter 40, verses 1 to 5. He says, in effect, I've already talked too much. No further questions, Your Honor. In a very wordy book of contentious accusations, in the end, for Job, there is silence before God. Psalm 46, verse 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. And Job um, finally acquiesces to the greatness and goodness of God. He gets a a new view of God. Just look at chapter 42 with me, and we'll be finished. He says, "I, I know that you can do all things. God is omnipotent to him. No plan of yours can be thwarted. God is purposeful and powerful. He gets a new view of himself in verse three. He says, you asked, who is this who obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I, I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Job confesses his sin of doubting God. He comes clean with God. But best of all, he comes near to God. What if it's in our suffering that God draws us near to him in ways that teach us things we need to know? What if the very tears that we cry nourish the plants that God has planted in our lives in ways that really matter to God? It was Dr. A.J. Cronin who was in Vienna right after World War II There was a sleet-driving snowstorm falling all around him. He stopped and found refuge in a little church. Dr. Cronin sat there for a few moments when he noticed a dignified-looking gentleman with a little girl in his arms walk in and go up to the altar and put an offering in the plate and kneel down and pray. And then as quickly as they'd come in, they walked back outside again and he followed them outside and he struck up a conversation and He looked at the little girl who was paralyzed, and he said, war? And the man said, yes, war. Her parents were killed by the same bomb that injured and paralyzed her. And Cronin asked him, what do you ask in a moment like that? We're thoughtless. What do we, do you come to church often, he asked. Man said, I come every day. And Cronin said, why? Why? And the man said, 
just to tell God that I'm not mad at Him. Have you come to that place with God? Because this is what Job comes to. I mean, he is piping hot mad in chapter 31. But in chapter 42, he comes back to God and says, yeah, I'm not mad at you. And now they're talking. Now they're really talking. And he sees himself as he ought to, as a faithful servant who renders service to God, not to place God in his own indebtedness, but because it's right and fitting to do so. Look, we, we often suffer. I know that's true of every person in this room. We often suffer. We sometimes understand. I know that's true of every person in this room. But hear me when I say, we often suffer and we sometimes understand, but we can always trust. We can always trust. We have heard of God, but have we seen Him in the aftermath of suffering? I love the fact that God restores more than we have lost. In Joel, doesn't it say what the locust years have taken? Some of my friends who've adopted children said to me that verse became so meaningful to them. All of those long years when they were trying to have children, waiting and then waiting for adoption, that verse that that the, the mother of the young lady came to her often and said, God will restore what the locust years have eaten. The locust took so much away, but God will restore even that. Psalm 126 verse 5 says, those who sow in tears will reap in joy. And it's true the Lord gives possessions, literally, if you just count it, double the possessions, twice as much as He had before. This is saying something because He was the greatest man in the East Not just the greatest person, but he had the most wealth in the East. And now he has double that wealth. And the Lord gives him a family again. It's interesting. It's not twice as many children. At this point in my life, I think that might be a grace just to have 10 instead of 20 new ones. I don't know. I was talking to somebody this morning said how much they love their grandchildren. I said, I think my kids are going to overlap with my grandkids at some point. And I suppose that's a good thing. But beyond that, we must see that children are not like possessions which can be replaced. They're really not, are they? Further, we might add that he has not lost the original children. 2 Samuel 12, 23, what did David say? He will, come to, he will not come to me, but I will go to him. I stand amazed at the number of families in our church who have buried children through the years. And only our church families can sustain us in those times. Vance Havner tells about when his wife died and, and everybody kept saying to him, I'm so sorry to hear that you've lost your wife. Havner said, I haven't lost my wife. She did die, but I haven't lost her. You haven't lost anything when you know where it is. And I know where she is. And some of you lost a son or a daughter and they're in heaven. And I, is it true? I mean, I just thought about this this week. I dare say that we've probably worried less about our sons and daughters um, in heaven than we have about those who are still on earth. The daughters are Jemima and Kezia and Karen Hapuk. Their names mean dove and cinnamon and beautiful. And notice just how egalitarian he is. He d- divides their inheritances equally when Numbers 27 verse 8 says daughters are only recognized if there's no son. But that's not the way it is. Melanie came from a home where her parents blessed her equally with her brother. The Lord gave Job a long life to enjoy that family, 140 years. You know, his first prayer in chapter 3 is, I just want to die. 
I wish I'd never been born. But God doesn't answer that prayer. God causes him to live a long life, and it's a, a crown of a blessed life. As Psalm 128, verse 6, Proverbs 17, 6 says, a long life is a crown from God. It's a blessing And God gives him a long life and it reminds us, this whole book reminds us that each moment in this life is a gift and he dies old and full of years, it says. But I still think about the fact that he lost ten children and he got ten children. Here's the best I can come up with on that. Job had ten children down here and he had ten children up there. He had double the number of children he had had. When Job got to heaven, he counted all his children in heaven. And there were ten there and ten on the earth. And God doubled it. There was a lady who was on a plane coming into Houston one time. And the plane had hydraulic failure. And uh, there was a moment there when they thought the plane was going to crash. And they went through the speech and everybody was prepared. And, and the whole time, she just kind of sat there and hummed and, and smiled and The plane eventually landed safely, and and somebody asked her, look, everybody on this plane was just in a panic. Probably if we could have seen behind the the cabin door that the pilots were in a bit of a panic. And here you were smiling and and humming and singing hymns to yourself. I got to know, why are you the way you are? She said, well, I was just thinking, I have a daughter in Houston, but a couple years ago I lost a daughter, and she's in heaven, and I was thinking... Whatever happens, I'm good. I go to Houston or I go to heaven. Either way, I get to see my daughter because I got two of them. And the story of Job is just a reminder to us that sometimes in the suffering, we see God in ways we've never seen Him before. And what we learn is that in suffering, God reveals Himself to us. So we enter into that suffering with the full realization that our God is more than able to restore everything that this world could ever take away from us. We often suffer. We sometimes understand. But do you believe me when I say we can always trust? Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for Your presence in this place. The greatness of Your love and Your power. Lord, where would we be without You? Where would we be without You? You give and You take away. And we bless Your name. And we ask God that tomorrow we'll know You better than we do today. And the next day better than that. And whatever it takes, Lord, for us to come to know you. Because we've, we've all heard about you. But we need to see you. So help us to see you, I pray. In a suffering world. Help us like you to enter in. In Jesus' name. Amen.